0: theologian. And here we are. um, uh, As I promised, we were going to look at the final two verses in Daniel chapter 9, verses 26 and 27. I just just didn't have the time we needed to be able to finish that up on uh, Sunday. And we really want to move into chapter 10, which is going to be an incredible uh, experience. Um, But in that being said, we wanted to really close this out and so um, I don't really have a title for this uh, because it's more of a Wednesday teaching time. And, and I guess the hardest part in, in this all is, is, is answering the question where to begin. You know, um, obviously, we're talking about Daniel chapter five, chapter 9, verses 20, uh, 26 and 27, but they're just two verses. And it's interesting because in those two verses, it details the Great Tribulation. And the regular tribulation, if you want to get, if you want to parse it out, um, and this particular time, aside from the the final week of Jesus, which is documented in all the gospels, and has we have an exhausted, we know more about the final week of Jesus' life than we do about the rest of his his time, uh, ministering in Jerusalem and Judea and where he was at, uh, but. Aside from that, this is one of the most documented times in Scripture. It's found all over the Old Testament and into the New. And so trying to get a handle on exactly what is meant when we say the twenty, uh, the 70th week of Daniel is not easy. And I'll be honest, I can already tell you, uh, there are going to be people... That may watch this broadcast, and yourself included, that may not agree with what I'm saying, and that's fine. Um, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not going to tell you that I have all the knowledge on this. I'm not going to tell you I have a perfect handle on the end time uh, theology. I just, I, I struggle with it just like everybody else does. I've spent a good deal of time researching it, and it is, it is just mind blowing. I still find it I'm still my mind is still just over the moon and blown away by the incredible timeliness and calculations of uh, the last few passages that we read on Sunday. The idea that God could uh, have all of that information and and that time just down to the nanosecond just about is just it just baffles my my mind. Um, but then we come to this. We come to this passage uh, in twenty six and twenty seven, where he goes beyond the, really in many ways, the death of Jesus Christ and his burial, and then jumps ahead to the final uh, week, the tribulation week. That is going to take place, and this is this is a powerful. Um, powerful passage and it's filled with a lot of opinions. Um, I think the best place to really start is, is with Jesus, right? Cause you know, he is the, he is the, he is the arbiter of, of all things. He is the, the King of Kings, Lord of Lords. He wrote the book through his spirit. Um, the Bible says that he is the word. The word was God. The word is God. Um, the word always will be God. So, uh, when we look at the word, which is, you know, Jesus, um, uh, and the bible then we can get a clearer picture but there are times when he just really jumps right into it so um i kind of want to uh uh use a couple different passages so i want to use luke chapter 4 first um because jesus did something near the beginning of his ministry um that sort of pointed a picture at what was being said here right so in luke chapter 4 jesus is is gone to the synagogue and he is uh, preaching, in essence. He is he, because he's a rabbi. He's young, but he's still a rabbi. He's um, um, uh, we're, at, we're in verse four, chapter four. So we're in the beginning of his pop, of his of his obscurity phase. He has three phases of his ministries: his year of of of, of obscurity, year of popularity, and then the year of opposition. Um, and so he's yet to become really popular. He's working that way, um, but he was. In the synagogue, he was invited to speak. And so he stood up, and in, Matthew, in Luke chapter 4, starting in verse um, 17, it says, And the book of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him, Jesus. And he opened the book and found his place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim and release the captives. And, re- and recovery of sight to the blind and set free those who are oppressed to proclaim the favorable favorable year of the Lord. And then um, in most in most versions, there's a comma right after that. And then Jesus stops reading. He closes the book and gives it back to the person, sat down, and all the eyes uh, turn to him. Now, in in the way that the Jews would would teach, sitting down was a sign that he was about to speak. Just like the same, you know, in churches today, the pastor stands into the pulpit. It's a signal that the that there, it's a time to preach. Um, Jesus sat down for his time to expound upon the, the scripture he just read. And he says simply this, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Um, and, and just like mic drop, he he did it all. He said, that's it. Right, um, but he doesn't finish that passage, um, which is kind of uh, interesting uh, that he chooses that passage. And then he chooses that place to stop. So if you look at Isaiah chapter sixty-one, make sure I got my notes right, um, and let's flip over to the Old Testament and find out what that passage said, um, so we can get a clearer understanding of what Jesus was trying to tell us in this isaiah passage so it's found in isaiah 61 i believe if my notes are correct and in isaiah 61 um obviously it's a messianic uh passage and it's one that jesus was quoting from and so um it's found in the very first uh, part of the verse um And you see um, in chapter 61, verse 1, I believe that's right. Yeah, chapter 161. And it says, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring the good news to the afflicted. We've already read that. That's what Jesus said. Um, He has sent me to the blind, the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the the captives and freedom to the prisoners. And then verse 2, it says, To proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. And then there's a pause, right? Um, And he stops. He doesn't finish the verse. Um, he doesn't go. He doesn't go any further. But he says, "And the day of vengeance of our God to comfort all who mourn." Um, he stops before he gets to that day of vengeance because that day hasn't come yet, and we're still looking at that. And To really understand this passage, as I've said from the pulpit and at other times when I've taught the book of Daniel and other prophetic books, is we need to realize that 99.9% of the Bible is written through the Jewish lens to the Jewish people about the Jewish people's future and ministry here on the earth. Now we know, and because Jesus talked about this, and and if you want more clarity on this, you can go back a couple sermons uh, where I deal with the times of the Gentiles, uh, where Jesus specifically says that um, until the times of the Gentiles be fulfilled. And so we're in this we're in this selah moment, and that's what, uh, what I like to call it, um, the selah moment. Selah is a word in in the Book of Psalms that just simply means restful pause. We're at that restful pause between the 69th and the 70th week of Daniel, and we're waiting for that to happen. We're waiting for it to come to fruition. Now, the other passage that I think would be important to go to at this point, still keeping on the theme of, of reading what Jesus had to say, is to look at Matthew chapter 24. Um, we talked about this uh a few a couple of sermons ago, a few weeks ago, maybe it was last week, I you know, uh when you deal with all this, sometimes the, the the days that I speak about these things can blur together because um it's just all packed inside here and I'm trying to pull it out, tease it out. Um and it's not always easy. That's why I call it the musings of an armchair theologian. I'm just amusing here and I'm not um a, a serious theologian. I'm just like a Monday morning quarterback. I'm an armchair theologian. I do my best and um and then I let the Holy Spirit, uh, you know, take the take care of the rest of the of the business. Um, so in Matthew chapter twenty four, we talked about this this all of that discourse, this um, discussion of end time theology or 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 um, or concepts. And uh, one of the things, remember now, this is we're talking about an incredibly Jewish um, context here, and. We need to recognize that. And Jesus talks about, we mentioned this before, um, see that nobody, uh, uh, no one uh, misleads you. It's very important that we ground ourselves in the Word of God, look through what Scripture teaches, um, because it's not as important as what a man says as is what God says. And if things that I say don't line up with Scripture, then you need to call me on it. You need to question me on it, um, and we'll, we'll, we'll work through it. Um, and we talked about the fact that the signs that he lays out, the rumors of wars, things like that, it's just the beginning of the birth pains. Um, there's going to be a long labor that's going to take place before, um, it's fully, it's fully manifest into the world. Um, but if you look down in verse 16 of Matthew 24, um, it, it begins to talk about those that are going to be in Judea, need to flee to the mountains. This is making reference to the first destruction of Jerusalem, um, and then uh, Jesus in, in 18 and 19, again, reiterates those and he throws that woe, like 19, woe to those who are pregnant um, in nursing and those who are nursing babies in those days. Obviously, there's going to be a major problem. It's hard to move fast when you've got a baby that's so small and so needy. Um, and that's what he's trying to say is that, that, that you're going to have to be quick. He says, pray that it won't happen in wintertime. Um, everything grinds to a halt here in Alaska in the winter time, uh, especially right now where the weather is, uh, the temperatures are going up and down, and uh, we'll have uh, we'll have rain like we had yesterday, and then freezing temperatures at night. And now we've got ice, yay, um, on the roads, and uh, makes it difficult to uh, to drive or to get anywhere or even walk to your car. Um, so that's just the nature of it. Um, but he continues on from verse 21 to 28, um, referring to when he's going to come back again. Um, and that's when he gets into verse 29, and that's where we're going to really sort of dwell in today. In verse 29 in Matthew 24, Jesus says this, "...but immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun and moon will be darkened and will not give its light, and the stars will fall from the sky, and the, and the powers of heaven of the heavens will be shaken." And, the sign, and then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn. And they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds with power and great glory. And he will send forth his angels with a great trumpet, and they will gather together his elect from the four winds from the end of the sky. Talking about that tribulation time. You say, well, what tribulation are you talking about? Are we talking about um uh, the regular tribulation, I'm talking about the great tribulation. Um, I think that there is uh, some phenomenal answers in this, but sometimes we have to go a step further and look and find out where else this is mentioned in scripture. You see, when Jesus is talking about this, you, you can move back and forth through this particular passage and see what he's talking about. And um, again, he really takes... Uh, those two verses in Daniel and just unpacks them in a more in a so mar- such a marvelous way. Um, but moving back into that tribulation time, if you go up to verse twenty one in Matthew twenty four, um, you see that there will be a great for there will be a great tribulation. There'll be a great tribulation such as not occurred since the beginning of the world. Unless those days have been cut short, no life would have been saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days shall be cut short. And then some will say, "Behold, there's a Christ." Um, um in the wilderness and 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 you have to he says don't believe it it 's not me, uh, false Christ and false prophets will arise behold i 've told you in advance all these things um and then he talks about the sign of his coming um <clears throat> this tribulation and great tribulation is also spoken about in other passages in the old testament um and Jesus is drawing a lot of that it try to synthesize it down for so as so as folks that are listening can fully understand um and he mentions this also in, um, of course, in Revelation, and Paul talks about it in Thessalonians. Um, there's a lot of discussion uh, in the Old and New Testament. Like I said, it's one of the most documented time period, if you will, between the Old and the New Testament there is. And so because of that, there's going to be a lot of opinions. And so I'm not going to um, try to change your mind to pull you to my side of the, of the fence um, when it comes to this. Um, But people want to know, where is the church going to be in this? Where are we going to be in this? And we need to understand that that we are part of it, but we aren't the focus of what Scripture is teaching, especially in this area. The majority of the teaching really centers around Israel. Um, And we'll see that in verse 26 in Daniel chapter 9. So if you'll turn with me there, uh, we can begin to look a little more closely at what he says. Um, so the Holy Spirit speaking through Daniel in this uh, uh, in this uh, passage, and and specifically he's you know talking about uh, what the angel Gabriel is telling him, and then after the sixty-two weeks, the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing, and the and the people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary, and its end will come with a flood even. Even, um, and it's even the end, there will be war, desolations, um, will war, and then desolations are determined. I'm going to stop right there for a second, because this is something that's, that's really controversial, um, and it just begins in the beginning. It says after the 62 weeks, before the 70th week. Um, this is uh, in that interval time period where uh, some things have to happen. One of those things that has to happen is that, Jesus, the Messiah has to, be, has to be cut off, and then Israel has to be, or Jerusalem has to be destroyed, and so does the temple. And that all is, is prophesied here in that particular passage. You see that in the beginning where it says um, that this, uh, this, the 62 weeks of the Messiah, and the Messiah will be cut off. The word there in cut off in Hebrew is kerat, and it literally means to, 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 to cut out, to cut off, to exterminate, to end, to cease. Okay, that's um, that's what they're talking about. And then he goes on to say, he will have, and, and have nothing. Now this, in the King James, it, it has a passage it says for, I think uh, the King James says that it is not for himself. That's how they translate that phrase. But this is a Hebrew idiom. An idiom is just a phrase that, that, that takes something and, means something slightly different or, 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 or different within that cultural context. Um, we have lots of idioms um, in ourselves. like here in Alaska, if I tell you I'm going outside, um, it doesn't necessarily mean that I'm going outside of the building or outside my house. A lot of times to locals that are here, especially in the context of the conversation, like if I was out having coffee and I said, yeah, next week my wife and I we're gonna go outside. Um, what that <laughs> refers to is outside of Alaska. Um, as so Alaska has, um, you know, if everybody's inside Alaska, then there's everybody outside of Alaska, right? And those are the two different types of people. Um, That's that's an idiom that is an Alaskan idiom. Now, this is an idiom that was uh, very popular or popular during that time within the cultural context of the Jewish people that literally means that he had nothing. He was completely desolate. Um, He had no people. Um, He looks like his mission was unaccomplished. Um, everything was just taken away, and he was just he was just completely and utterly desolate. Um, that's kind of the phrase there. And if you think about it, when Jesus was on the cross, now to the appearance, now I'm not saying that, that the mission wasn't accomplished. I mean, Jesus, with his arms spread out, said, it is finished, um, giving the understanding later on when we viewed it um, through that biblical lens that, yes, he did accomplish his mission. But from an outsider looking in, from the Jews looking in, it looked as though everything was done. And he had lost it. His disciples were scattered. Um, uh, his, his mission, as far as they were concerned, was, was at an end. I mean, he came uh, just a few days before as their king uh, to take the throne. I mean, that was in the mind of the Jews. That was it. That was exactly what Peter and, um, and James and John, the rest of the guys, wanted. You know, in fact, in the very end, when Jesus is about ready to ascend into heaven, because He says, "I'm going to a place. I'm gonna prepare for you. I'm getting ready to go up." Um, he's like, "Hey, Jesus, by the way, just wanted to know: is now the time you're gonna you're gonna inaugurate your kingdom? Is now the time that this kingdom is gonna begin?" And Jesus just, I mean, I can almost picture Jesus looking at him and saying, "Peter, you've been with me this much time, and, and you're still not getting it. Um, I love you, brother, but..." Um, Sometimes you act a little thick. You know, uh, of course, this is my supposition in my mind. Obviously, Jesus didn't say that. Um, Jesus is much more compassionate. He's God. I'm not. Um, but I know my snarkiness would come out in this. I'm like, come on, Peter, wake it up. Um, but it was something that was foremost on the minds of the Jews. They were constantly looking at when this kingdom, this when the, when the Messiah was going to come back, like they thought he was foretold in all these passages. They co- totally missed the idea that the Messiah was going to be killed um, and who was going to kill him. Uh, he was cut off, and it says he was cut off in the scripture, had nothing, by the people of the prince who is to come. These are the Romans. They're the ones that uh, that that actually carried out the sentence of death on Jesus. And the Romans are the people of the prince, which is Titus Vespasian, who was going to come in 70 AD and totally destroy um, the temple and Jerusalem. So it's about 40 years after uh, this happened that the destruction of Jerusalem happened in 70 AD. Um, so, that being said, this prophecy um, was completely fulfilled. And then it says, uh, of course, the joy the city and the sanctuary, um, and in its end um, will come even with a, fl- with a flood. Uh, even to the end, there will be war and desolations that are determined. Um, now, there wasn't a, a, a literal flood, but if you look at the number of people and the accounts that we have of, of the destruction of the temple and uh, that particular moment, it was like a flood of humanity, um, of paganness that just just flowed over that city. Nothing was left standing. It was completely razed to the ground um, as the Romans just came in like a tidal wave, like a flood, and just... <laughs> washed it completely clean. Um, and Jesus' prophecy that not one stone will be standing upon another was, was accurate. And that's exactly what they happened. Um, so we need to understand that this passage really is, is incredibly Jewish, like I mentioned. And we see that in verse 27, because we want to know what happened in between, uh, the seventy ninth and sixty ninth and seventieth week, um, but we're not really given a lot of information on that. And it says, and then he will make, then he that he is referring to the prince who will come. This is a, a, a reference to the antichrist, to the man of lawlessness, to the little horn in Daniel eight, um, to the um, the antichrist. You know, the one that we're all waiting for. This is that he. It's not Jesus. And whoever says is Jesus, they haven't really read the totality of the scripture and don't understand the context of the Jewishness of this passage. So. You know, take umbrage with me if you want to, but anybody that says differently, they just haven't read Scripture well enough. Um, and there's only a few theologians that still hold this opinion. Uh, the majority of the theologians that that I've read um, all agree that this he is the Antichrist, and that he will make a firm covenant um, with the many uh, for one week. It's a seven-year period, one seven. Um, and in the middle of that week, he will put a stop to the sacrifice and the grain offering. And on the wing of the abomination, and on the wing of the abominations, will come one who makes desolate, even until a complete destruction. And one that is decreed and is poured out on the one who makes desolate. This is a, a pretty powerful passage. We're talking about that ruler, the people, the ruler of the people that are going to come, the, the the antichrist, and he's going to come and he's going to make a um, covenant with the people. Now. Theologians are divided about the about the, the the concept of the sacrifices, and I don't want to be too hardcore with it, but it's hard to stop a sacrifice a sacrificial system that's not happening, right? Um, but it could be making reference because this is written in Daniel at a time when there was no sacrifices happening in the temple. It could make reference to the idea that um, that the entire practice of the Jewish faith was outlawed, much like what happened when uh, Antiochus Epiphanes came in and and set up that abomination of desolation that we talked about a few weeks ago, where he erected a statue of Zeus and sacrificed a female pig on the altar um, and sprayed the pig's blood all over the inside of the holy place and the holy of holies, um, and and completely desecrated the temple, which um, in turn started the Maccabean revolt. So obviously, there's a, um, there's a lot here that Jesus is trying to, um, to, to allude to, even though um, he's bringing in the, the history of the moment, but he's also speaking to a future point where this is going to happen, which often happens in Scripture. So this is not like this is a one-time, um, one-time event. So um, that being said, we understand there's a gap here, right? There's, most theologians believe there's a gap between the 69th and 70th week um, when things are going to get kind of rough. Now, this brings up to the point, well, what's going to be the, the event, what's going to happen? Um, uh, and this is where theologians, again, are divided. A lot of us uh, theologians, we like to think that we know it. We don't. Um, and we like to look at this, this rapture concept. Paul talks about it in Thessalonians um, because people were concerned. They thought they had missed something um, because there are some apocryphal writings that have been passed around um, that were saying that, that the rapture had already happened and, oh, you guys have missed it. And they're like, ah, we don't want to be left behind. Left behind. Anyway, they didn't want me left. And so Paul's like, hey, wait a minute, relax, calm down, bring it down a notch. Let's remember the teaching that I gave you. Remember there's going to be some things that are going to happen. Let's try to bring it all back into context. You haven't missed anything, it hasn't happened yet. It's still a future event. Um, Here's some things. And he talks about the rapture of the church. Now, the word rapture, of course, doesn't um, enter into Scripture anywhere. That's a word we have used. It's a Greek phrase. It means the snatching away. Um, And so it's just something that we've put in uh, to sort of uh, characterize it. But the question is when? When does it happen? Um, For years now, people have asked me, well, Pastor Al, what are you? Are you a post-tribulation, a mid-tribulation, or a um, pre-tribulation preacher? And uh, what do you think? And and I like to jokingly say that I am a pan-tribulationist in the sense that in the sense of it'll all pan out in the end and God's got it completely under his control and I'm not worried about it. Um, but that's a, that's a joke more than anything. Um, I do worry. I don't worry. I can, I, I, I'm conscious of it. I'm thinking about it. I'm not worrying about it because I'm trying to live my life as a, as a wise virgin, um, that, 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 he talks about in scripture, you know, where I'm, I'm trimming my wicks, I'm making sure my oil is full, I'm, I'm waiting for the imminent return of, 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 of the King. And so when it happens, I want to be ready. Um, but whether it happens in my lifetime or not, I don't know. My father was convinced, just absolutely convinced, hundred percent, that he would not die until Jesus came back. And he had his own time frames. You know, he was looking into into the end time uh uh timeline that a lot of people ascribe to and you know, like the founding of, of, of Israel as a nation and um and how that factored in. Um and he was just convinced that he was going to see the rapture of the church. Well, my father passed away a couple years ago and he um he's now in home at home in with Jesus. I mean he's seen the Messiah, um, but Jesus has not yet come back unless we've been left behind. <laughs> yeah, I keep picking on that. I'm sorry. Um, I just, I think that's, yeah. Anyway, moving on. Um, but the reality is, is that we have to ask ourselves, do we believe as Christians that the, that Scripture teaches that the church will be raptured um, before the tribulation, in the middle of the tribulation, or at the end of the tribulation? And that's why we have pre-, mid-, and post-tribulation theologians. Um, I don't think there's much scripture to um, point to a post-tribulation understanding. Um, There is some good work done with theologians that have really looked in this deeper than I have um, that give a really good argument of a kind of a a modified mid-tribulation concept, the idea that the church will not go through the great tribulation that is mentioned Um, the great tribulation that's going to affect the Jewish people. Um, And so there's some folks that talk about a pre-wrath. That means before the wrath of God being poured out. I think if if push came to shove, if you actually just said, said, um, what are you? Um, I would have to fall on the side of the uh, pre-tribulationists. But that being said, uh, I don't, want to lock myself into that because I think that there is some good scripture uh, that uh, sort of defines um, both the whole pre-wrath or or slightly mid-tribulation kind of concept and there's some also there's some really good scripture and I think more scripture that support a pre- uh, tribulation view of the rapture concept. And I think the biggest reason is, is, again, we have to go back to the understanding of what Scripture and how Scripture is written. Scripture, for the most part, is written primarily through the lens of Israel. And there's only just a few parts where you see that church age concept. Um, and some things have to happen uh, to make all of this work the way it's supposed to. Um, And so when I look at this, like for instance, and this isn't a study about Revelation, but you can't talk about Daniel without bringing some elements of Revelation in. And one of the things about Revelation is that um, the first four chapters of Revelation really deals with that church concept. And then the church is snatched away. And from like chapter four-ish, almost five on, it is an incredibly Jewish book written to the Jews about what's going to happen at the end of, of days for them. And there's a lot of passages that talk about that. We could pull in just a bunch of them. Um, for instance, uh, uh, Jeremiah calls it... Uh, Calls it the, the 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 time of Jacob's troubles, um. That's how he defines it, um. As the Holy Spirit led him, and then in the book of Hosea, in the last, in not last year, in the fifth chapter, um. He talks about specifically. He's quoting God here. He says, "I will go and return, and go and not return until, um, until they have acknowledged their offense before me, and are seeking my face." Um, the idea that God has withdrawn from the Jewish people His presence until they, as a nation, will accept and and understand that they need Him, and if you bring that back to the Book of Daniel, where He talks about He, the Antichrist, will make a firm covenant with with the many. The many there typically refers. Um, most theologians and myself included believe that this. Is in reference to national Israel, and so the national Israel will have that affirm covenant that's going to be made for seven years um, and we don't know what that looks like. Um, my own opinion is that the Antichrist won't even show up until after the rapture, so the idea that he's even going to be here when we're here is kind of odd, but I also know that Satan doesn't know who the Antichrist is. And I personally feel like he's had several over the over the last 2,000 years that, um, that he sort of had in the wings thinking that this was going to be my guy. Um, but I don't know. Maybe he doesn't think that way. I don't even pretend to get into the mind of Satan. My focus is the mind of God. Um, but you see in verse 27, he says, "...and he will make a firm covenant with the many for one week, seven years." And in the middle of the week, he will put a stop to the sacrifice. And that's where that abomination of desolation is talked about re-emerging. Jesus reconfirms this. Um, And Jesus was, Daniel spoke about the abomination of desolation before it happened. Jesus spoke about it in reference to the historical action that happened um, after Daniel wrote, but before Jesus showed up um, in bodily form. And he was referring not to the event that happened in history, but an event that's going to happen in the future. And we don't know where that future is. We just know that we are in this in between church age church church age spot. And there's there seems to be a gap. And now you need to understand there's there's been a lot of gaps in scripture and, and there are people that get into numbers and they like to say the whole four hundred and ninety years concept, seventy times seven means things, and I don't know. I'm not a numbers guy, and it takes somebody a lot smarter than me to to parse that out. Um, And I'll leave that up to you if you want to get into that study. It's just, it'll suck you in because it's really exciting. Um, But um, there's always been sort of those gaps that sort of been part of the history of the Jewish people um, as God is is giving them time for the fulfillment of their sin or the prophecy to take place. Um, And so it's not surprising that we don't have... Um, a lot of information about this, so this is just part of it. Now, um, the final bit of of, of verse twenty seven uh, simply says that um, he'll put a stop to the sacrifice and the grain offering, and on the wing of the abominations, he will make uh, one who makes a desolate. Talking about the the abominations of desolation, the um, talking about that that in his Daniel's mind, the future moment that he hasn't seen yet um, about uh, Antiochus Epiphanes putting a Um, statue of Zeus and the Holy of Holies and the pig blood, all that stuff. Um, But I think this prophecy, not only fulfilled there, but it is also a dual prophecy. It talks about end time stuff um, because it talks about um, till a complete destruction and that one is decreed and is poured out on the one who makes desolate. So it's talking about something that's going to happen even further in the future um, with that final aspect. Um, So that being said, we need to remember that the key to understanding Old Testament uh, prophecy, specifically Daniel's, is to know that we're really dealing with Jewish prophecy. Um, Paul, in the book of Ephesians, in Ephesians, like... Really, a, I know a lot of people think of the Book of Ephesians, and they automatically think Chapter Six, the armor of God, yay! You know, and that's all they look at. I'm like, ah, there's so much more there. Um, uh, Paul talks about in the third chapter about a mystery that he's revealing that God has given him the understanding, where he is he is linking the Daniel um, discussions. Um, they're link, linking, linking the book of Daniel with the Daniel discussions of Jesus with the coming of the Antichrist and the, and the end times, the eschatological concepts that, that, um, that Paul liked to bring out. And, and really, there's a lot of that in, um, in, those, in, those, in that small little book of Ephesians chapter, in six chapters. So we just need to understand that this future that's going to happen, it's going to be there. We can't change it. And we shouldn't even worry about it because in my opinion, we're not going to be here when it takes place. So in that understanding, now granted, that's an opinion based upon my own study. Don't take my word for it. Go to scripture, figure it out yourself, be like a Berean, um, study it. And if you think I'm wrong, let me know. Don't get angry if I don't agree with you. But uh, understand that this is one of those areas where I think God has allowed a level of tension to be left in it, a little bit of ambiguity where we just don't know because he wants us talking about it. He wants us thinking about it. He wants it in our brains, in our forefront. There's the understanding of imminence, imminence within the New Testament, the imminent return of Jesus Christ, all through the gospel writers, they bring up the idea that he is coming and he's coming soon, right? So Paul said it, Peter said it, James said They all say it's coming soon, coming soon, coming soon. 2,000 years later, we're still saying it. He's coming soon, he's coming soon. Um, I don't know when he's coming. But as I mentioned from the pulpit and from here, I tell you, It's looking more and more every single time I turn on the news, which lately, I'm not watching the news much. There's nothing on there but opinions and garbage in my own humble opinion. Um, And I have enough opinions. I don't need to be told somebody else's when it comes to national politics and what's happening in the world. Um, But I'm looking at the world today and I'm thinking, wow, there is so much out there. Um, that's so similar to what we read in the pages of Daniel, Jeremiah, Isaiah, the, Re- the book of Revelation with, from John, um, Hosea, Zechariah, um, man, to just to name a few. Uh, it's just everywhere. And when I look at what Jesus said about the rumors of wars and all that stuff, and that's just the beginning, and I'm thinking, you know, my own opinion is, that while the, the church as a whole will not go through the tribulation, I don't believe there's any guarantee that the church won't be driven underground. Um, I heard a preacher talk about this a few years ago, and he made a point, and I can't remember the name of the pastor, so if I'm quoting somebody and, and, and I'm not giving them attribution, I, I forgive me, um, this is out of my memory that's imperfect. Uh, but he was saying that it was his belief, and this was in the I think the 90s, maybe 80s, um, it was his opinion that before the rapture of the church, before the tribulation, before the Antichrist, before any that stuff happens, that the church will be driven, the church in North America will be driven underground, just like the church in China and other parts of the communist world, and they will be driven underground primarily by the established denominational churches of the day. That means churches like ours, yours, the one across the street, down the road, in the neighborhood. That means that these denominational structures are going to embrace the secular worldview so much that they are going to push the real, true remnant church underground. You say, well, that'll never happen. Well, it happened in Germany. You say, how did that? What do you mean? Well, the real church, the people that truly loved Jesus Christ and were called according to his purpose and understood scripture and understood that Israel was a vital component, um, they were completely silent and completely disappeared while the Holocaust began. And then one in three Jews were killed. One in three. And you say, well, that was a tragedy, a terrible tragedy. Something like that will never happen again. The final passage of Scripture I want to leave you with ought to be chilling, but we need to understand what is coming in the future, whether it's going to happen to the Jewish people or if it's going to happen to the church or if it's going to happen to both of us. But we need to understand that Christian under the Christian concept has always been one of a remnant concept, a remnant ministry. We are not... Reaching the entire world, we're trying to, but we're really only reaching out that small core remnant that God is is calling to Himself. Um, and, but I want to turn our, our final passage to the Book of Zechariah. And in Zechariah chapter thirteen, let me open it up here. Um, I think you're going to be a little surprised at what you read um, in Zechariah. So, in Zechariah chapter um, chapter thirteen. Uh, verses eight and nine. now this is part of the prophecy that's going um, that's going against Israel okay um, and some people make the argument that we are uh, we are the new Israel. I don't know if that's completely accurate. Um, I think that we are a planned part of the expansion of God's kingdom, but I don't think that we replace Israel in any way, shape or form. I think that we are part of it but not a replacement for it. And in chapter uh, 13 of the book of Zechariah, starting in, well, I'll just start in the seventh verse, but my focus really is verse eight and nine. Um, But this is part of an entire prophecy and I want to keep it intact. So uh, Zechariah is saying this, um, Awake, O O sword, against my shepherd, against the man my associate declares the Lord of hosts. Strike the shepherd that the sheep may be scattered. We're talking about the death of, of Jesus, our Lord and Savior. Prophecy before he ever happened. I love it how God does this. He already knew ahead of time. He says, I will turn my hand against the little ones. And here's where it gets really dark. Verse eight, and it will come about in in all the land, declares the Lord, that two parts will be cut off and perish, but the third will be left in it. And I will bring the third part through the fire, refining them as silver is refined, testing them as gold is tested, and they will call on my name and I will answer them and I will say they are my people and they will say the Lord is my God. What he's saying here, now bear in mind in the Holocaust, one out of every three Jews were killed. That's a lot. It's a lot of people. For a a, a singular people group. And there are more Jews now than there were alive then. I get that. But look what else it says here. It says that, that two parts, each part is a third, two parts will be removed and one will remain. That means for every three Jews, two will be killed. This is the... This is the tribulation. These are the the troubles of Jacob. This is the great tribulation period. This is the time when the Antichrist puts an end to the systematic worship of God by the Jewish people. It's a scary thing. It ought to be chilling. And we know that it's going to get tough. But we also know the end. The end is when Jesus comes back on that horse with his bride behind him. And he battles that final battle and sets up his millennial kingdom and sits on the throne and rules for a thousand years on a literal throne. And we get to be a part of that. That's going to be truly amazing. So there is an end. It's going to be grand. It's going to be glorious. But the steps between here and there are going to be some of the darkest that humankind has ever walked through. But we also can fall back on Scripture. When the Bible says, through Christ, who strengthens me, I can do all things. I can endure all things. God will give us what we need when we need it to accomplish his story, to grow his kingdom, so that his son might be magnified. And that's our job, to love Jesus with all our heart, mind, body, and soul, love our neighbors as themselves, and then go into all the world, making disciples of all nations, preaching, baptizing, and, uh, and, and telling them about the gospel message, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, doing what we've been called to do. That's where we are. So um, that's kind of the essence of it. We finished up this last chapter. I know I gave you a lot of food for thought, but I, and some of you saying, man, give me more, give me more. Well, time is what it is, and we just don't always have that time. I'm hoping that what I'm doing here is tantalizing you, tempting you, if I will, to read scripture more, to dive deeper into his word. So again, I thank you for showing up for another episode of The Musings of an Armchair Theologian. Uh, I encourage you to spend the rest of this week uh, in prayer, in the Word, and magnifying Jesus' name as you help to expand His kingdom wherever you are.